Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. You can find out more about us at crawford.anu.edu.au. And I am delighted today to be joined by two esteemed co-hosts. Uh, first of all, it's uh, been a while since we've seen her on the pod, Sue Regan. Sue is a PhD scholar at Crawford School. She is the program director at the Institute of Public Administration Australia. And she was chief executive of the Resolution Foundation a UK-based research institute focusing on the well-being of low earners. Hi, Sue. Hi, Martin. It's good to be back. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And also making his pod debut, drumroll, is Paul Verbal. Hello, Paul. How are you? Hi, Martin. Very happy to be here and excited. Yeah, we're excited to have you on as well. Paul is also a PhD scholar at Crawford School, and he was previously the general manager of the FE2W network and managing editor of the Global Water Forum blog. So it's fantastic to have your expertise on the panel. I hope you have a good, strong debut and uh, very enjoyable. I'll do what I can, Martin. I'm excited. Now, before we get into what we're going to be talking about on this week's pod, at the start of each pod, we we ask our presenters to pick out something from the wide world of policy over the last week and just tell us what's caught their eye. So perhaps if we start with you, Sue, what's caught your eye in the news this week? Well, it's been hard to get past the Christchurch massacre, and I think we should acknowledge that on the podcast today and really uh, you know, acknowledge that uh, there's a lot of grief and sadness going on in New Zealand, both among the families of those who died and the wider Muslim community and indeed, you know, New Zealand overall. So I wanted to really just mark that. And I know that we're going to be uh, exploring some of the implications of that on a future podcast soon. That's exactly right. Next week, we are taking a look at uh, countering violent extremism policies and in fact, whether those policies are doing enough to tackle uh, far right extremism. Good, very important podcast that will be. Um, But the policy that I... uh, really wanted to raise this morning was an announcement by the government here in Australia yesterday, which was their population policy. Um, And they have set out some proposals for changing the permanent migration numbers in Australia to try and bring them down a little bit. Um, There's been some questioning of uh, whether that will actually result in less permanent migrants coming to Australia. They've reduced the target down from 190,000 to 160,000. 
And the other key aspect of it is to have a, a new visa category which encourages people to go and live in the regions. Um, and this has been framed as tackling congestion in our major cities. So, you know, a very um, interesting development, I think, for them to set out a population policy. So the reaction to that hasn't been overall entirely positive, has it? No, and I think it's partly the way it's been framed. So it's been seen as this uh, attempt to tackle congestion in major cities um, you know, and the argument is that actually migration is only a very small part of that problem. And the much more uh, significant problem is that we've underinvested in infrastructure in our major cities for a long time in Australia. So, yes, so it hasn't been uh, widely welcomed. There's been um, a, a lot of, uh, you know, um, discussion also about whether migrants will go to uh, will want to go to particular communities where they're being incentivized to go in the regions, whether there'll be jobs for them. Um, so, yes, I think there's a, there's a start of a rich debate there uh, in terms of what it might mean for, actually mean for our major cities, but also our regional areas. Paul, what did you make of uh, that announcement yesterday? I think for me, I'm an economist by training. And often what we tend to think about when we think about population is, okay, what are our resources? Uh, do we have fixed resources of land? Do we have fixed resources of water? Uh, and all of a sudden, all of these debates can start to become, oh, we don't have enough space. Oh, we don't have enough water. We don't have enough food to be able to fit a larger population. And maybe a good way to think about these things is to start thinking about, okay, well, how can we make use of the resources that we already have in a more sustainable way and start from there rather than looking at the supply side? Yeah, good points all. So let me turn to you now, Paul. What was the policy issue that caught your eye over the last week? Thanks, Martin. Well, my one is squarely and firmly from the, the Canberra bubble, as our Prime Minister likes to say. And that was an article in the Canberra Times yesterday uh, that was saying that the, the big four uh, consulting companies were awarded $562 million worth of contracts in the last financial year. Now, that's up from about 100, 100 million about 10 years ago. And now I'm not, I don't work in the public service, never have. I've never worked for one of those consultancies before, but raises a few questions for me that I think some of the listeners of this podcast might be able to answer. Uh, and there, there's three of them. One of them is, are there core functions of the Australian public service that are being outsourced? Is that what this flow of money represents? Uh, the second is, is that half a billion bucks? Is that value for taxpayers' money? Or could it be better invested in, in, the, in the APS in terms, of, uh, in terms of better training or more staff? And the third one, which is probably the big one in terms of the, the policymaking process, is can the staff in these consultancies, can they speak truth to power when whether or not their company gets the next multi-million dollar contract depends upon whether the answers they give on the current one are what the minister and their political advisers want to hear. And those are three big, big questions for me. Those are three very good questions. And I, th I think what we'll do is we'll put those questions up on our podcast Facebook group. We'll ask them of the listeners and see what their take is on this. But I'm interested in your take on this, because so, you're obviously involved with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and the Public Service Review is something you spend a lot of time thinking about. What do you, what's your perspective on, uh, on this, this story? Yeah, so I'm... You know, we've talked before on the, po the pod about the independent review of the public service that's happening at the moment. Um, and that's 
reaching a critical point. Um, you know, the review put out some ideas earlier this week. Um, you know, and one of the key debates is about the workforce, uh, obviously, and uh, and the role of private consultants. And as Paul has highlighted, the use of private consultants has gone up considerably over the last decade. And there is questioning about whether it's value for money. And I mean, I think your last question is great. Great, you know, can they speak truth to power when they're uh, they're reliant upon this? You know, they're reliant upon getting further work from the public service. I mean, I think that the uh, the private consultants can play a tremendously valuable role. I think, uh, you know, the the use of the term. Canberra bubble often applies to the public service itself. You know, it can revert and often is a very introverted, exclusive club. And I think the more external perspectives can, you know, benefit the quality of the policymaking process. And I think you do get a different perspective from the private consultants. They approach policymaking in a different way to the internal processes within government. So I think they can bring a lot of value. Um, I think it's perhaps gone too far. I think, and there have been implications of that. So I think, you know, a lot of the core policy work has been outsourced at times, uh, and that has led to a reduction in the capability within the public sector. So yes, so it's not without its implications. Yeah, both very important points. And thank you for that. So listeners, you've heard what have caught the eye of our presenters this week. What's caught your eye in the wide world of policy? You can let us know in all of the usual places. You can uh, hit us up on Twitter, where we're at Policy Forum. You can email us at podcast at policyforum.net, or you can jump on our Facebook podcast group, Policy Forum Pod, and uh, just let us know your thoughts there. And, and on the subject of the podcast group, we are recruiting members for that podcast gang. So, Jump onto Facebook, type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar, um, and you can find a full sort of behind-the-scenes experience of the pod. Tune in for a chat with our listeners and our presenters. Uh, There's some great discussions happening on there. So today on the pod, we want to take a look at how policymakers deal with sudden, unexpected change, from Trump to the European migration crisis, Brexit and beyond. In 2016, when the majority of polls pointed to a clear win for Hillary Clinton and Trump ended up taking the win, the world was pretty shocked. Trump drove his campaign based on fear of immigrants, by offending swathes of potential voters and discrediting experts. And since then, we've seen him refer to Kim Jong-un as Little Rocket Man. We've seen a video of him talking about grabbing women by the genitals, another of him mocking a disabled person, and recently the longest ever federal government shutdown over his plan to build a wall to keep Mexicans out. It has not been smooth democratic sailing. But also in 2016, it's kind of a bad year. Really, we saw the vote for the UK to leave the European Union to Brexit. It was a surprise to many. The UK swiftly triggered Article 50, which is the two year mechanism for a member state to leave the EU. And in the two years that have followed, we saw the country and the EU trying and kind of failing to get to grips with the decision. UK Prime Minister Theresa May's deal she struck with the EU was overwhelmingly voted down twice in Parliament. 
This week, John Burke, the Speaker of the House of Commons, ruled out a third vote on the same deal. And with nowhere else to go, uh, May is now reaching out to the EU to postpone Brexit for either a short delay to push the deal through or a longer one of up to two years. We're recording this on Thursday morning. Uh, and probably by the time you've listened to this podcast, you will know far more about what's happening in Brexit. It's moving so rapidly. Uh, but as we're recording on Thursday morning, overnight, Donald Tusk, the European European Council president said the EU would only allow a short delay if May's deal, which currently doesn't command a Commons majority, is passed. And the clock on all of this is ticking. Brexit Day, that marks the two years since the UK triggered Article 50, is March the 29th. So it's just around the corner, really at the sort of cliff edge on this stuff. So today we want to ask, Are our democratic institutions up to the job of coping with huge shocks to the system? And we want to take a close look in particular at Brexit and how that has impacted the policy and politics of the UK and EU. And we've got an amazing lineup of guests to discuss these questions, haven't we, Sue? We have. Um, First of all, we've got Nick Gowing. Uh, Nick's the co-author of the book Thinking the Unthinkable and the director of Think Unthinkable Limited. Um, I uh, know of him well because he was the BBC World News' main news presenter uh, until fairly recently, until 2014. Uh, He's also a visiting professor at King College London and at Nanyang Technology University. It's great that Nick can join us. That's fantastic. A proper BBC journalist in in the podcast cupboard here. Very exciting. Um, Then we've also got Dr. Anne McNaughton. She's a senior lecturer here at the ANU at the College of Law. And she's a fellow also of the European Law Institute. Um, And her research focuses on uh, the European Union's unique legal order and uh, and also EU-Australia relations. So again, a great expert uh, to have with us today. Um, and then finally, uh, we've got Dr. Alistair Wedderburn. Uh, he's the John Vincent Postdoctoral Fellow at the Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs. Um, his research looks at the relationship between international relations and visual, literary and popular culture. Um, And he teaches here at the ANU. uh, His course is Special Topics in International Relations. And this looks at cultural approaches to international relations. So again, a great uh, addition to the panel. It's a fantastic lineup. And anyone who listens to this pod on a regular basis knows that I have strong feelings about Brexit. So I'm really interested to hear what the panel has got to say. I'm going to be stepping aside. I'm going to be leaving the interview to you because I'm interested in you know how you kind of uh, shepherd that discussion. But also, I'm not sure I can be entirely objective or sensible about this topic. So I'll be stepping aside. So we'll hear that interview in a second. But first, a, a, again, a quick reminder to our listeners, do get in touch with us about the podcast. Let Let us know your thoughts. Let us know your comments. Hit us with your questions. We absolutely love hearing from you. You can find us on Facebook where we are Policy Forum Pod. You can find us on Twitter where we're Apps Policy Forum or just email us podcast at policyforum.net. And do stick around after the main interview because we're going to be going over some of your questions, comments uh, on previous podcasts and on pieces that we put up on our website, policyforum.net. But for now, let's have a listen to that discussion. Welcome, Anne. Thanks, Sue. It's lovely to be here. And welcome to Nick. Thank you very much. And welcome to Alistair. Good morning, Sue. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us today. We're going to be having an excellent discussion, I think. 
from the election of Trump to the UK deciding to leave the European Union, why are we seeing so many seemingly unpredictable events these days. I want to kick off by asking you, Nick, about in light of this, do you think our democratic institutions are ill-prepared to take on these challenges of unpredictable shocks? Well, I'm involved in a massive project, which I started after I stopped being a broadcaster, actually, five years ago, when the world was becoming quite unhinged in many ways because of Putin. And we have called it Thinking the Unthinkable, because so much of what is happening appears to be unthinkable. But actually, based on an enormous amount of interviewing and frank discussion, often behind closed doors, usually one-to-one, what we're seeing is um, a real fear and an inability to cope with something which is happening now. In short order, what you're seeing, I think, is that the conformity which qualified leaders for the top, in other words, climbing the greasy pole, whether in the corporate sector, whether in government, or in politics, is actually disqualifying them to understand the enormity of change that's taking place. And our project predicted Brexit on the 1st of June, 23 days before the referendum, and also predicted that uh, Trump would be nominated, quite apart from being elected, simply because of one thing. We don't call it populism. We call it pushbackism. It's the resentment among the public against so many, whether in the corporate sector or the public sector, who simply are not delivering on what they say they want to deliver on, who don't have the right values and don't have the right purpose. And therefore, anything like a referendum, which happened to be about the European Union membership in the United Kingdom, was seen as a way of people saying, I don't like the system anymore. I don't think the question is about democracy. Democracy is actually producing new governments. Look at Poland, look at Hungary, look at Sweden, look at what happened in France with the decimation of the traditional parties apart from the National Front. Look at what's happening in Italy. You can't say democracy is dead. It's just producing very different results. And the real sweat and the real stress is about the political parties who don't get the enormity of what is happening, including in a place like Germany, where there are very traditional parties, traditional party structures. And to get to the top in a party in, say, Germany, you have to conform. But actually, conformity is disqualifying you from understanding the enormity of public pressure, which is the pushback against the system. And what about the the institutions of democracy, though? How do you think they're coping, that parliament, the public service? Um, are they are they equipped to be dealing with these challenges? Well, one of our top interviewees um, was actually a four-star general who's now running the British military. And he said, the enormity of what we're facing is like eating an elephant in one mouthful because so much of what we assume would happen in a kind of regulated way over days, weeks, and months is happening altogether. And it's beyond the power almost of politicians and, and corporate leaders to handle this enormity. They are enfeebled. Uh, many of them have described to us very privately that they're scared and they're overwhelmed because actually the systems which you're talking about are simply not able to cope. And we're not talking about the systems. Remember, systems are actually manned and the personnel are men and women. It's a very personal issue about whether they've got the capacity to handle it. And that's a very different question to are the institutions good enough? What you're seeing is public servants and you're seeing corporate leaders, including uh, chief executives, look at the Royal Commission here in, 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 in Australia, the decimation of credibility and, and honor that, and, and respect that there is now for the banking community. It's the people at the top. 
uh, who are who are really struggling. So I would qualify your question and say it's not the institutions, it's the people who are involved and the capacity to handle it, and it's damn difficult. And Anne, can I turn to you on this? Um, you know, how do you think policymakers and legislators are coping with the pace of unexpected incidents? Well, the imp- distinct impression I have um, is that they, in a sense, they're really not. And uh, just to pick up on some of the comments that Nick has made and your question about institutions, I think it's really important to remember that institutions are just people. There is a framework and there is a structure and that's been put in place to manage certain events and circumstances. But if the individuals and collectively the groups in those institutions don't have a particular moral compass, and I'm not about to suggest we start going down that path and explore what that is, but just some fundamentals around integrity, around doing the right thing, I actually don't think it's as difficult as sometimes it's made out to be. Um, A very good rule of thumb is usually if you wouldn't want to see it on the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald, don't do it. And I think a lot of the behaviour, for example, in the Banking Royal Commission, when you look at it, you say, well, here in Australia, we talk about the pub test. Would it pass the pub test? And an awful lot of behaviour, frankly, I look at it and think, nobody would think that was okay. Least of all people who are in these positions of extreme seniority and responsibility. Now, if you've got people in positions of leadership, as Nick was uh, speaking of, not able to effectively lead, and in fact, not able to be honest and genuine with their other colleagues, that then becomes a problem because they're all trapped in a particular way of behaving. And so they are overwhelmed in terms of trying to develop policy, trying to suggest a way forward that would be observed and would be attempted, and also trying to break out of the the mould that they feel they need to to subscribe to. So um, I'm sure individually there are people who see that there are things that could be done, but collectively, which is how we work because of the way in which the system is set up, um, I think it's it's really rather overwhelming at the minute. Could I say it's moving very fast? Yes. If we'd been having this discussion a year ago, I'd be quite That's pessimistic. True. But having been at the World Economic Forum in Davos, I can tell you, um, as I've got a five-year kind of timeline here, that within the last few weeks only, there's a new awareness among the political leaders and the corporate leaders that something is changing and they've got to rise to the, rise to the, the challenge. Otherwise, they're out. Whether in the corporate sector, um, there are those who say that capitalism is now under real threat in the same way you're asking about is democracy under real threat. But it is about a new way of, 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 of acting. And what you're seeing here, what you've just seen on Friday the 15th here with climate change, what you're seeing around the world, it's easy to say, well, they're just students. Something big is changing on climate change. And leaders will ignore that at their peril because the next generation is saying, we don't like your leadership. We don't like your leadership on climate change, on purpose, on values, on the, on the ethical nature of business, on the ethical nature of politics. And that's why I've interrupted at this point to say, literally in the last six weeks, there has been a significant change, which is going to mean that leaders are going to have to be very different very quickly. Otherwise, they're out. And um, that is a big challenge. And the second challenge is 
most of the next generation don't want to become leaders. So many companies and many political uh, organizations are finding they're getting it, they're finding it difficult to find people who are going to be the next leaders. That's a real existential threat in many ways. Alistair, can I uh, bring you in on this? Do you yes. sense this change that we, uh, you know, there's been a, a turning point and that we're starting to expect something different of our leaders? Well, I think to return to what Nick said about pushbackism as opposed to populism, that raises, I think, a further question as to what precisely people are pushing back against and why that has emerged as an object of resentment at this particular historical conjuncture. Um, and I'm not sure it's possible to perhaps compartmentalise that question into a, a single answer, of course, but again, to return to, to the question of institutions, um, I think 2008 or 2007, eight, and, and the banking crisis is very much underplayed in, in these discussions of political instability, or at least it often is. Um, bank bailouts is literally nobody's idea of how capitalism should work from the right to the left and everything in between. And that, I think, leads to a certain mistrust of economic institutions, which because of those bailouts feeds into the political system. And while I would by no means claim that that is a magic bullet for the explaining the instability we're seeing today. I think there's a kind of long historical story that goes back at least a decade and quite possibly more. Just picking up on the, the question of, of history, Alistair, can I, can I ask, is there something special about this moment? Is there something special about what's happening now in the financial crisis? We've, there have been financial crises you know, throughout history. What's special about now? That's a very good question, and um, I'm not entirely sure necessarily. I mean, the one thing that is very definitely different about the contemporary political landscape uh, and something that is becoming more and more of an issue within political discourse and within um, you know, uh, the academic study of politics is, is digital media and, and the role that that plays. That is clearly a, a space, a discursive space and a political space that... Um, has perhaps not received until quite recently the attention that it should have done in terms of the influence um, on social relations perhaps more widely. And clearly that has fed into questions like Trump and Brexit and those kind of enormous emblems or markers of contemporary political instability in ways that really we're only beginning to discover now. Well, speaking of Brexit... Mm. I, I have a feeling that there are a few people around itching to, 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 to get stuck into that. Could I just come in, though, on, on that, if I may? Yes, please. Because actually, I'm sorry to interrupt you. But let me just pick up on that. History tells us what's going to happen and what is happening. We've probably had 70 years of relative stability compared to what's coming down the track. And what I'm going to be lecturing about here is about what I would call a red alert, that history tells us that we've had a relative period of calm and stability compared to what may be coming next. And Robert Kagan's just written a book about the, the jungle fighting back. And we all come from a generation, although those of us of a certain age remember the Cold War and so on, which has assumed stability and natural growth and natural um, a, a comfort zone. And I think this is where the politicians and the corporate leaders are going to face a massive problem because helped by what the Chinese and the Russians are doing in terms of trying to subvert and destabilize societies, not with, with weapons, but with cyber weapons. Um, what you're seeing is the potential in addition to all these economic and social factors um, for what we've assumed is natural improvement 
maybe not in a place like Canberra, but in many parts of the world, the assumption that the world and your, your, the, way, the way you live and your wealth is going to improve is probably now a false assumption, which is going to be very difficult for politicians in the corporate class to manage. What you're about to see, not just because of AI, and what you're seeing already is the hollowing out of the middle class, which is going to be in the hollowing out of value. Now, you may think that this is all Marxist and Trotskyist and sort of revolutionary. No, the indications are there. And that's something which most people do not really want to accept. And I've just come from Munich, from the Munich Security Conference, which is an extraordinary gathering of people at the top. And literally, and I have it in front of me here, their document for the opening in the middle of February was, how do we pick up the pieces? In other words, they're saying the whole place, the whole world has become fragmented already. We've now got to pick up the pieces we need new management tools to prevent a situation in which not much may be left to pick up. That's scary. And that's what politicians have got to accept, quite apart from Brexit, which in my view is a sort of form of self-destruction. But what you're seeing in many countries is the decimation of the systems of governance and the credibility in governance. And in addition to which, there's the pressure from China, the political pressures from China and Russia. So, you know, I hope if I get invited back in five years, 10 years time, you'll say you are far too pessimistic. But so far, the trend in the last five years has been that gloomy. It's not pessimism. It's about realism. That's what makes good leadership, understanding what you have to do. So to pick up, history shows us mm. with the First World War and the Second World War, what can happen if you don't understand this? Most don't want to think it. I think I'd like to come in on that, though, as well. I don't necessarily disagree, but thinking that I've been doing for a long time now, and particularly because my core business is as a teacher, really, here at the Australian National University. And so there are a couple of points picking up on what Nick has just said. And one of the things is that it it was brought home very clearly to me a couple of years ago teaching in my European Law and Politics of Integration course uh, an assumption because I had grown up through the, I'm starting to tell my age now, grown up through the collapse of the Cold War, but I had visited East Germany and gone through that. And I was you know, talking about this in very general terms, as if my audience, my students, understood anew about the collapse of the USSR and the, you know, that, to my mind, marvellous moment when the war came down in Berlin and so on. And I found I had to actually almost give a little history, a little tiny history lesson and it came home to me incredibly uh, clearly because I am an EU devotee from the beginning to the end, problems notwithstanding. Uh, the world with the EU in it is a far more stable place geopolitically than without it. Um, so if I'm going to persuade my students to my way of thinking, rather than them simply accepting my position because I'm the person out the front of the lectern, I need to give them some information and point them in the direction. And the starting point is, if you believe in rule of law, tolerance, dignity, the democratic institutions, then this is the best model for that. This is the way forward. It's more or less how I began. The, so the first point is that, as Nick said, history teaches us if we forget history. So we actually, we the, the part of the interesting aspect of Brexit as well was that Young people there had not known any different. Of course, they assumed so. They didn't appreciate the danger that perhaps they perhaps perceived now and that we perceived who were a little older and could see it in the context, the, the longer historical reach. The other point I would make, though, on this as well is that while the leaders and at the top, if you like, are trying to work out what's going on, what's happening, on the ground, all of us are getting on with our lives on a day-to-day -day basis 
trying to make the best of the situation. And that's why personally I found the climate change um, movement with the young people across the globe so encouraging because they are becoming re-engaged and they're re-engaging on their terms. And we don't really know what that's looking like and what that's going to develop. But the starting point is they care. And they care about preserving and saving the world, the environment, each other. That's got to be a great place to start from. And while the leaders are trying to work out things at the top, which is important and necessary, and there is a space for that, at the grassroots level as well, there is a slow re-engagement. And that's, that we have to encourage that and support that. What I think of the unthinkable work, let me tell you, though, that um, what you're talking about here is denial. And that's why I raise climate change. If we'd been talking about it before Greta went to the World Economic Forum, we wouldn't be talking about it. But now something much bigger is happening. It's happening at an exponential rate. And the politicians are going to be caught off guard here. They're going to have to come up with, with stuff which really addresses this. These are the voters of the future. Um, and one of the um, sanguine things about Brexit is that a million people who voted for Brexit have now died because old age. And so you're seeing a demographic change and the systems and the leadership um, attitudes are not changing with it. And that's why what is happening and what you're seeing on Friday the third, on the 15th and it's going to keep happening is an exponential rise. And it's going to happen very quickly. We're talking in the, at the beginning of an election um, process, both in New South Wales and also the federal election. Now, when I come, when I think back to ten or twelve years ago, when John Howard want nothing, wanted nothing to do with climate change, and suddenly I was up at a Heyman retreat for the leadership retreat, and suddenly there was a push on climate change, and suddenly all that went to John Howard, and suddenly he woke up to it because he saw it as a vote winner potentially, then it's been killed by Abbott. But I'm telling you that this is a really big issue. And if we're talking about leadership, that is the one thing which is going to really destabilize a lot of governments. We've seen it in France with the Gilets Jaunes, and that was over a diesel tax. 80% of the country did not want that tax imposed. Well, speaking of, of polls, uh, this week uh, in our podcast group, we ran a poll, uh, and which we're going to try and do on a weekly basis. So if you want to b- vote, uh, join the pod group on, on Facebook, on Policy Forum Pod. And for this pod, we asked you, the listeners, whether you saw Brexit or Trump coming. And most of you responded that it had caught you by surprise with only one person saying that they saw Brexit coming. Picking up on some of the discussions we've had about Brexit already and, and, and maybe you know, taking a closer look at Brexit – uh, Alistair, if I can start with you, why do you think so many people didn't see Brexit coming and should they have? So in my field in, in international relations, there is a common presumption uh, or a common belief in the stability, not so much of international order per se, but rather stability in the, the principles that govern it. And people will go back to Thucydides and uh, Hobbes and various other sort of thinkers and and kind of claim that there is a certain continuity or a certain stability uh, in the principles that govern and influence the way in which politics is carried out. And I'm not so sure about that. Um, in, in that kind of way of thinking, change is something that happens exogenously, as political scientists say, something that comes from outside. And uh, I think perhaps recent changes and indeed other historical changes become far more um, easy to understand if you ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better. Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Accept uh, change and transformation not just as something that happens within political systems, but as something which is, in fact, the founding kind of principle, the underlying principle beneath political order. But that's a difficult thing to think about that kind of radical instability, and people tend not to do that. Um, and so, you know, after, let's say, the Washington Consensus from roughly sort of 1979, 1980, there's a certain stability there that was kind of confirmed by the fall of the Soviet Union, or at least in some people's eyes, was confirmed by the fall of the Soviet Union. And that has now begun to unravel for, again, a number of reasons, but I would go back again to 2007, 2008. But it takes a while for the instability that a kind of big upheaval and a big shift like that, it, it takes time for that kind of change to manifest itself, I suppose, at the, the sharp end of politics. And that's perhaps why it's only now that we're coming to terms with that. And now if we take, you know, building off some of the comments that, that Anne and, and, uh, and, and Nick made before, that instability is is normal mm. and that, that actually we've just been going through a, a period of, of relative, I guess, stability and radical change is normal. How then can policymakers and politicians in the UK with Brexit or in other countries respond to these shocks? Nick, can I, can I start with you? Well, I come back to our main finding, the conformity which qualifies people for the top disqualifies them from understanding the enormity of disruption. And I know I'm sitting in, in one of the leading seats of academia. And in fact, my godfather was one of the found, founders, uh, Keith Hancock. But I have to say that I think academia is conformist as well. It's conformist in its own literature. And I can say that because we had enormous pushback against us from the traditional thinking back in February 2016, when we first published before the Brexit referendum, people almost accused us of smoking something in saying what we're now saying, which is that actually you're getting, you're un failing to understand the enormity of discontent, which is out there. And that was four months before uh, the referendum in the United Kingdom. And I think there has to be much greater encouragement to think in a very different way. That's why we call it thinking the unthinkable. But it's actually not thinking the unthinkable as much as thinking the unpalatable. And the smart people can see the evidence. And that's what we did. We did predict. We were the second. If you've got one, per, one, one person who said, we, I saw it coming, we predicted it. We wrote in Chatham House on the World Today on the 1st of June, this is what's coming down the track. And it's not in any of the risk registers because people, it's not thought of to think about things in a different way. And that is a big cultural change. It's a big mindset change. It's a big behavioral change. And picking up on one of the reasons why I'm doing this, having left as a main presenter for BBC World News, I left in early 2014. It was, it was when Putin was doing dreadful things in eastern Ukraine and also had seized Crimea in violating violation of international law. And one of the reasons I started down this track was I, I was approached to do a project and, and do some radical thinking on why this had happened. And one of the things that happened was in the European Union at the Vilnius summit 
in November 2013, they were insistent that Putin would accept an association agreement from Ukraine for Ukraine. They did not believe that Putin would be furious and that he'd be resentful and say, up with this, I will not put. And that's what led to Ukraine, what's led to the destabilizing of Ukraine, the seizing of Crimea, violation of international laws. Within the external action service, they were not prepared to consider actively that Putin would do what he then did. And much of what is unraveling in the world now is can be dated to Putin saying essentially two fingers to the European Union on this association agreement. We're seeing it in many leaders in the developing world, um, in Africa, and look at what's happening in Venezuela and Brazil and elsewhere, which is a going against traditional thinking and get me wrong and I will get back at you. These are serious moments of instability, which is, which is why, if you like, the Hobbesian approach is in fact wonderful to talk about and, and sit exams for, but it doesn't really help us when it comes to understanding the enormity of the unthinkable things which are now happening and that why we talk about a red alert, because leaders have to think in a different way. And just to remind our listeners, the, the Hobbesian view, uh, what was the, the great Anne? You, you, do you know? No. It's, it was that without uh, political coordination that uh, mankind's life is solitary, nasty, brutish, brutish and short. short. Yes. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's the one. <laughs> Yeah, we've got a, a question for, from our listeners now, if that's okay. Um, Mark Zanker would like to know, and I think I'll put this to you, Nick, if that's okay. Um, why has Theresa May hammered the theme of delivering on the will of the British people in so many of the speeches she, had she has made on the Brexit issue, um, given that the vote was not compulsory, that significant numbers of people did not vote, uh, and that a majority of voters in Scotland and Northern Ireland did not support leaving the EU. This has been a puzzle to me too, Nick. So what's your thoughts? Why didn't you invite her to answer the question herself? <laughs> I can't get into her mind. I mean, for, for, for a politician to be as single-minded and lonely as she is, she's done remarkably well. But I, it's like a Rubik's Cube, what's happened with Brexit. It was an impossible thing, unless you're a genius at mathematics and politics to fix this. Um, you've asked so many questions. I don't know the answers, frankly, um, because it's been about survival. It's been about delivery. 15, uh, 52% uh, versus 48% of those who voted did vote for the ref wrote, vote for Brexit. Um, and will it be tested? Will there be a second referendum? I, I'm not answering your question because I don't actually know the answer. But if there were to be a second referendum, I suspect you'd see a significant number of people who'd say, look, I voted once. Don't tell me how to vote again. Don't try and do an Ireland or Denmark on us. And if you didn't get the message, then I'm going to give you the message now, which is screw you. Um, that's what we believe in, even though it's almost a, an issue of self-destruction for the Euro United Kingdom as a United Kingdom and a sovereign state. And we're speaking nine days before it was due to happen on the 29th of March. Now it may be another two months. But I couldn't tell you what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone what's going, why much of what has happened has happened apart from the fact that the political system has been shown to be unable to accommodate this. Just to, to jump in there, I think the uh, dynamics that underpin the Brexit vote are much bigger than Brexit itself. But there are nevertheless exactly. factors to do specifically with the Brexit vote that have compounded those dynamics, I think not least the wording of the referendum question itself, which gave no clear path from A to B in terms of how to actually leave the European Union or what leaving the European Union might mean. Um, and clearly the ambiguity 
that that has set in motion has played out in in the chaos that that we're witnessing now. In terms of why Theresa May is so fixed on the will of the people, I think part of the reason for that is that while the referendum wasn't legally binding, it's nevertheless very politically difficult to turn away from that. And Theresa May cannot count on the will of Parliament Mm. to do her bidding. And so she has only that really to cling on to as the kind of driving force, the justifying force between um, or underpinning her withdrawal agreement. And I think that's important as well. But I think what's happened, been happening in the last two or three months and what may happen before transmission of this and after transmission of this has not just been a car crash. It's been a nuclear bomb uh, of of testing how politics works, how democracy works. We're in, we're in a first-past-the-post system of constituencies. If it was proportional representation with a list system, the, the realities would be rather different in parliament. But you're dealing with MPs who each have to be nominated by their party association in order to stand. And what you can feel is, quite apart from the issue of whether this is good for the United Kingdom, is actually about how they survive as an MP. Do they vote the way they believe or do they vote the the way their party association believes or what they believe most people in their constituency believe, which could be different to what the majority in the country are believing? It is not a great way of testing people's public opinion. And when when uh, M- President Macron, as a result of his grand débat, as a, after the Gilets jaunes catastrophe, has been going around France for the last three months and starts talking about, let's have a referendum, I say, you must be nuts. This is, this is, this is destruction, destruction of good relations, of family relations, of relations between friends. It's, it's generated a level of nastiness you cannot believe between people who have been friends, acquaintances, working with each other. It is a seismic sort of um, inversion of, of good societal balance. It's terrifying. I can vouch for that personally. We had great division among my family on the Brexit vote. I could still vote, uh, even though I've been in Australia for a while, but most of my family are back there. And yes, it led to rather difficult Christmas dinners, the, 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 the Christmas after the vote. But most um, people voted on the basis of not understanding oh, what absolutely. they were voting for. And indeed, this is a, I mean, another listener question for you. Um, and Nick, this does relate to uh, what you were saying a bit earlier. So I'll merely put this one to, uh, actually, I'll give it to Alistair. Um, uh, did those who promoted Brexit and those who voted for it really understand what it involved? No, because I don't think there was anything to understand. There was no substantive policy beyond leave, whatever that meant. Um, And uh, just before we started the record, Nick, you mentioned the kind of uh, confusion uh, which uh, Boris Johnson and Michael Gove faced the morning after the referendum. Yeah, please do, I think. Well, you could see from Boris Johnson's face, even a man of self-confidence who I knew as a Daily Telegraph correspondent in, in Brussels, he was pretty shaken by what, what he'd unleashed. But for me, the serial moment is Michael Gove, former Times journalist. He was woken at 4.45 on the 24th of June by his wife, who happens to be a journalist, Sarah Vine. And Sarah Vine told Michael Gove, who'd been obviously up most of the night, you've won. He's, I've checked this with him. I've asked him personally. I said, did this really happen? And she said to him, you've won. And he said, oh, my God, I better get up. And she then said, quoting the Italian job, that marvelous film, you're only meant to blow the, excuse me, bloody doors off, not actually rob the bank. In other words, those who've unleashed this did not expect it to happen and had no policy. 
And Anne, what's what's your opinion on putting such a complex question, uh, such as leaving the EU, to the people directly? I'm going to speak frankly here and and. I'm choosing my words really quite deliberately. I think it's a great wickedness and I think it's a great wickedness not only shared by the UK Parliament but the governments of all the member states. What Brexit demonstrates is the failure of all of the member states to clearly articulate to their populations and to their citizenry the benefits. Yes, there are downsides as well. There's no question of that. But there are very clear, real benefits of being in the European Union. And there was an absolute failure to refute, particularly in the populist press in the UK. There was an unrelenting push from the media and the tabloid press about and blatant lies. And with respect, you know, Boris Boris Johnson was a big part of that. Peddling lies. And then unfortunately, those not being refuted and responded, having a genuine debate at the grassroots level about the pros and cons of being in the European Union and what this means. Much of the criticism that has come through and the complaints that we hear in snapshots and bites, sound bites in relation to why the EU is such a dreadful enterprise. And there's no question that there are deep pockets of inequality in the UK as there as there are throughout the EU, as there are across the globe. The point about this, though, is that much, of, if not all, of the responsibility of that lies in Westminster. It does not lie in Brussels. The other point about this is the iterations and the treaty amendments and developments since 19, well, in fact, 1952, when you had the coal and steel community, but let's say the European economic community, which is at the core of this whole project. 1957 through to 2007, when you have the Lisbon Treaty, you have an evolution of a political and legal structure. It is a legal enterprise. And you have this structure that has evolved and developed And there are no questions. There are those who are antagonistic towards it. But that was never clearly explained down using the principle of subsidiarity, for example, at the grassroots level. So by the time the referendum came around, it was too late to try and win back, to use that dread, in my mind, dreadful expression, hearts and minds of the people in question. Though that groundwork should have been done by all the member states' governments sequentially over a good number of years. And the problem with the stay campaign was that the very people who then had to try and promote stay were the ones who had allowed it to continue to go through to the keeper, blaming Brussels and saying, well, what can we do? Our hands are tied, which in fact was never the case. So um, in terms of what was happening, I, I can only see it as a great wickedness and a betrayal of the, of the parliament and the government to its citizens. Can I just add to that, though, that um, now what's fascinating at the end of the five-year term of the commissioners, I've heard people like Franz Timmermans, who's the first vice president, who said, and he said two years ago, the European Union two years ago was on the brink of collapse. You've now got George Soros warning that actually the European Union could collapse like the Soviet Union. Now, I think that's probably going a bit too far. But I've heard and I've witnessed uh, commissioners who were there to do it in a certain way saying, we got it wrong. We assumed that the public wanted to support the European Union. We should have gone out and sold. Now, of course, they're not up for re-election and most of them will never get reappointed. But you're facing the European election where there could be immense pushback and resentment now against the European Union. And by their own admission, 
I'm just building on this point. By their own admission, they realized they should have been out there selling, Absolutely, absolutely. And no Britain was an, an, an example of what could happen in many other countries too. Yes, there's no question about that. Yeah, I'd just like to sort of contextualize. I mean, the question you asked, Sue, was, was about whether it was foolhardy to put a complex question to the British people. And I'd like to contextualize the Brexit vote um, just by reminding everyone that it was two years after the Scottish independence referendum, which was obviously not without its issues, but a far more sort of positive experience for at least many Scots. I was living in Glasgow at, at the time. Um, and which also, in terms of the British political establishment, quote unquote, came out with the right, quote unquote, result as well. And uh, I think that would have almost certainly informed that decision to, to move for a referendum on, on Europe, which clearly in retrospect was a irresponsible and a sort of grotesque strategic error. But the gains potentially for Cameron in terms of wrestling control over a, a sort of errant wing of his or a party wing of his party that had been errant for 30, 40, 50 years were potentially very great. And um, that it didn't work out like that, I think there's a number of reasons for that, not least that the European Union is a far easier object of resentment um, perhaps than it had been given credit for, especially in the wake of um, Greece and what happened in, in Greece and the spectre of sort of Germany looming over Europe, which I don't believe was an accurate one at all, but which nevertheless is emotionally a very powerful one and something that can easily be harnessed to a particular discourse. Could I just give a footnote here about a referendum? Someone I know who's very steeped in the way things work in Parliament says that if there were to be a, a people's vote, a second referendum, there are already 17 different questions which have to be chosen because the question itself then uh, includes an inherent bias. So 17 different options. It's not just yes, no. I just want to add that notwithstanding my heartfelt commitment to the EU, I'm not blind to the challenges and the complexity there. It's just that when I look at the world with those member states not integrated in that legal system as opposed to what we have at the moment, notwithstanding its difficulties, and I agree, it's quite, it's, there's a real risk there as well. It's quite fragile, as there is in the United Kingdom. I mean, that word united is very much under threat at the moment. It is. So I think it comes back to that core principle, which is as individuals, people need to be thinking a little longer and more clearly about what they want and then working out what the trade-offs are in committing to that. So where is this all going? Um, where will the next big shock come from, do you think? I'm going to ask each of you. Um, you know, um, What do you think's the main lesson that we can take away from the Brexit debacle? Well, the own, personally, again, I think it's it's about people re-engaging honestly with integrity. I'm under no illusions about how difficult that is to put into practice, particularly in a world with trolls, um, uh, um, digital media, all sorts of difficulties there. I understand that. But the fact remains that if we don't start adopting a little bit of the faith and the idealism that those young people had in the climate debate and start to genuinely work out what kind of world do we want to be living in and how do we begin to work towards that on an individual level as well as at an institutional level. Um, we're going to have some – continue to have these challenges. Alistair, your thoughts. What's the next big shock or – 
in terms of Brexit, I mean, the, this will be out of date, no doubt, by the time it's aired. But um, John Burko's intervention uh, earlier this week and Donald Tusk's statement that he made, uh, well, overnight Australian time, uh, yesterday on Wednesday European time, I think exemplifies a, a, a very serious struggle over um, Theresa May's strategy and, and Theresa May's viability as the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Her strategy has been to winnow down the options to two her deal or no deal, which is probably the only uh, other option that's more unpalatable to the British Parliament. Uh, Burko's intervention where he said that she wouldn't be able to bring that deal back opened up kind of Pandora's box to any option, I think. And Tusk's statement where he said that the EU will not grant an extension in, unless the par par British Parliament passes Theresa May's deal kind of seeks to move it back to two. So there's this kind of expansion and contraction of the options happening at the moment. Uh, and what the result of that will be, uh, I don't know. But I think it's that that is kind of the key battleground at the moment in terms of Brexit. And Nick, what's the unthinkable that we should be thinking about? I think there are plenty of unpalatables. Um, alien invasion, well, you could say that referendums are alien invasions of logic and balanced thinking. That's an alien invasion of could you really do that? But there are a lot of people out there who are prepared to do it. I think the corporate class is under real threat at the moment. Even Raghu Rajan, the former governor of the Royal Bank, the, the reserve former governor of the Reserve Bank of India, said a few days ago, he may be a contender to become governor of the Bank of England. He's now at the Chicago Booth School of Business. He said, essentially, that the public is losing trust in the corporate system, because the corporate system is not producing wealth and benefits for people anymore, except those at the top. And that's what Macron is experiencing. These are really serious moments. And what I'm going to be talking about here, every slide I'm using is a red slide, because I think it's a red alert. And it's about those at the top realizing that it's not just about them clinging on to their, their pensions and their salaries and their reputations. It's about the brave leaders getting out there and saying things are going to be really different and we've somehow got to manage this. And it's easy to say that this is a real threat to governance, but that's why Brexit has to be seen as a leitmotif for where things may be going in Italy, in Hungary, in Poland, in Sweden of all places, um, in France as well, and in other countries, of the dangers of governance sort of imploding. And um, let me quote to you um, one chief executive, Ian Conn, the chief executive of Centrica, which provides British gas, they've just lost 700,000 customers. And he's one of the very few who was prepared to go on the record for all our work. Business has to form a different relationship with society and government. And right now, it's at a low point. We're going to have to find a way to be trusted. Power is shifting to the customer because they have more choice and digitization is accelerating the whole thing. Now, that's the corporate view. But it's the same for politicians as well. And the British Academy in the UK, which is the doyen of, 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 of social scientists, is saying that mistrust in the corporate system and the system of, of wealth has never been as great as it is now. They're doing a big study on the future of the corporation. But can I leave? You're asking me for my view. And you, you may want to sort of carry me out horizontal and sort of accuse me of smoking something if I were to say what I'm about to say. But I want to put it actually in the mouth of... Um, Joe Kayser, who's the chief executive of Siemens, massive engineering company worldwide. And he encapsulates, he decided to do this, not us, to say the following. If we get this right, 10 billion humans inhabiting our planet um, will benefit. But 
If we get it wrong, societies will be divided into winners and losers. Social unrest and anarchy will arise. The glue that holds societies and communities together will disintegrate and citizens will no longer believe the governments are able to fulfill their purpose of enforcing the rule of law and providing security. Well, here in Canberra, we're sitting at a critical time in Brexit when behind the scenes, the British government has been preparing for martial law and insurrection. Now, you may think that that's radical, but that's when you have a system falling apart. Those are the kind of things that even people at the top of industry are saying. We would subscribe to that, but it's not an easy thing to say because we're accused of being pessimists. I would suggest it's being realistic. And when it comes from someone who actually is providing wealth to vast numbers of people through the companies, the, the factories, the plants, hundreds of thousands of people, they're saying, we can't guarantee you stability to provide work, which then creates even bigger problems. On that note, alas, we are going to have to draw this to a close. Um, that was a fascinating discussion and we could have kept talking a lot longer, I think. Um, thank you very much to the panel. Thank you, Anne. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. And thank you, Alistair. Thanks very much. Well, welcome back and thanks once again to our guests today. I thought that was a fascinating discussion and I'm really interested in what you thought of it, listeners. Um, do get in contact with us. Give us your feedback, uh, your comments about what you've heard today. You can get in contact with us on email where we're podcast at policyforum.net, on Twitter where we're at policyforum, or you can jump on and join that Facebook podcast group where it is policy forum pod we love hearing your thoughts so at the end of each uh week's podcast we go over some of your questions and comments uh that have either been left for us on the group or they've been left for us on our website policyforum.net and uh, i want to hone in on one article that was up on policy forum and one podcast and first the the article and it was an article called Australia's suicide prevention plan is barely worth its name, and it was by Jerry Georgiatis. And in the piece, Jerry writes that Australia will only reduce its national suicide toll if policymakers are held to count on poverty, education, bullying, and indigenous disadvantage. It's a terrific piece. And we had a comment from at Schmiegel on Twitter. I'm not sure I pronounced that correctly, so apologies if I didn't. And he's, he or she wrote, Jerry is right. Too many in the established mental health club, in air quotes, for some reason refuse to prioritize those most at risk, back actual action rather than trials, truly act on race, gender, and social determinants. Hopefully lived experience can change that. So perhaps I'll turn to you first, Sue, with your social policy background. What do you make of that? Um, well, it was a, a, a very interesting article. Um, and, you know, I think there is an increasingly broad consensus that uh, to do anything about the suicide rate in Australia has to uh, be a a focus on prevention. Um, and, you know, that's not easy. In any area of social policy, prevention is not easy. And it's particularly difficult in relation to suicide when there are so many deep uh, and multiple uh, reasons and causes, which can be individual, which are also structural, um, you know, which lead people uh, to taking their own lives. So, you know, while I think we should 
give some credit to the government in their suicide prevention plan. Um, it may be uh, a step in the right direction, but I think, you know, I, I thought Jerry's article uh, was very compelling in highlighting its inadequacies and really the, you know, the the, the challenge uh, and the effort which will be required to have a, you know, a truly uh, preventative approach to suicide. Because it's not just about preventing the act of no. suicide, is it? It's also about preventing or dealing with those kind of contributing factors, those societal factors that Absolutely. might impact. Yeah, you know, and as the Twitter comment, comment, comment uh, illustrated, it's about the determinants. It's about the you know the social, gender, race determinants of uh, of the population uh, who have higher rates of suicide. So yes, absolutely, it's not the act. It's looking you know far far further back in the the train of events uh, and looking at how we can have a, a society uh, which prevents suicide. I always enjoy Jerry's writing on this topic. And he wrote a fantastic piece, not on Policy Forum, I think it was on The Guardian, where he looked at the uh, uh, suicide rate amongst Indigenous communities and, in fact, amongst very young people in the Indigenous community. Unbelievably powerful and moving and, and, and sad piece. But I want to turn to you now, Paul. What's your thoughts on, the, on that comment and, uh, and indeed in the argument that, makes, that Jerry makes in the piece? Well, as a uh, as a non-expert and citizen, and a, a man in his mid thirties, uh, my comment would be uh, more just that I think Australian population is ready to be talking about suicide and to be talking about mental health issues. And from my own personal experience, now it's much more acceptable for men of my age to be able to talk to their mates when they're having problems. Whereas maybe when we were 18, 19, 20, we weren't doing that sort of thing so much. And I think that's a really, really positive thing. And if the government can uh, engage with uh, changing social norms, uh, particularly with men and other, part, other sections of the community as well, I think that's a very positive, it would be a very positive thing. Great. So the next thing I want to turn to is a podcast which we put out recently, which was a social insecurity system with John Fowson, Sue Olney and Bob Gregory. And in the pod, the panel looked at the problems of punitive welfare systems, the caustic language that we hear talking about job seekers, the dull bludgers and what have you, and the role that uh, labour policy plays in creating sustainable solutions. And we asked on Twitter, are welfare policies focused on reducing pressure on the welfare budget rather than helping job seekers find work? I think that was based on a comment that Sue had said. Um, and we got a comment in response from Evelyn Delu on Twitter, who wrote, true, possibly for Australia, not true for genuine welfare states like Denmark, Sweden, Netherlands. Sue? Yeah, so we are, so Australia has a, a very different welfare state to uh, the Scandinavian countries. Um, and there's a, you know, and I think uh, you can argue very strongly that Australia and indeed the UK's welfare systems lag behind in terms of uh, good outcomes for people who are uh, most disadvantaged and who are looking uh, for work. Um so yes, um, I think uh, we need to remember that this debate uh, in context, and it's a you know the debate around welfare conditionality and the punitive nature of welfare is a debate that's happening in Australia and it's happening in the UK, but it's not happening in. Uh, 
what we think of as more progressive welfare states. Um, so yes, there is that context to remember. Paul, as an economist, what's your what are your thoughts here on striking the balance between uh, welfare policies that probably support people um, and having uh, policies that are affordable for a country? Should Australia be looking at those models in Denmark and Sweden, Netherlands, and think, well, okay, that's the way to do it? I would I would suggest that. Well, maybe not suggest. I'm going to make a prediction, Martin. And that is that we're going to have a serious discussion in this country sometime in the next 10 years about universal basic income. And it's not going to be one that's going to be framed in terms of lifters and leaners or dole bludgers or handouts. It's going to be a more serious discussion about, okay, what are some of the costs of unemployment uh, in terms of economic costs, but also social costs, human well-being, and what are the benefits of providing people with the opportunity to be able to fulfil their potential and what are the best ways in which we can do that. And we can certainly learn from other countries, but I think this this dichotomy of, oh, if if you're on unemployment benefits, then uh, that means that you're not willing to work is is just going to be something that as an economy and as a society, uh, I I don't think that's going to have a place in our society in the future. And Paul, I... I Lord, your optimism. Uh, but I fear we're a long way away from that at the moment. I think it will take a, a big change in the way that we, the way that politicians talk about welfare population and how they, um, how they frame this debate at the moment. But I do, I, uh, I do agree that, uh, Something will have to change, um, you know, particularly in light of wider debates around artificial intelligence and the nature of the job market in the future. So, um, yes, I, I, but I, I lose your uh, optimism on this. Now, in fairness to Paul, he did say sometime in the next decade. He gave himself plenty of wriggle room yeah. for this. Sorry, de- I thought I said two, maybe three. Yeah. <laughs> for this debate to start happening. So uh, that's wonderful. Thank you very much for your comments. And thanks to everyone who has left us comments and questions, uh, either on through our social media channels, Apps Policy Forum on Twitter, on the uh, Facebook group, Policy Forum Pod, or via email. We really love hearing your comments. Whatever you want to say, do let us know. Uh, so if you've enjoyed today's episode, and I certainly enjoyed today's episode, it was really interesting hearing all about those uh, big issues underpinning particularly Brexit, then perhaps you might want to leave us a quick review on iTunes. It only takes 30 seconds. All you need to do is find that fifth star, perhaps put a comment in there. It would be a huge help to us in getting the word out about the podcast. So that's it for this week, but we'll be back next week with another Policy Forum pod. But until then, from me, Martin Pierce, cheerio. From me, Sue Regan, goodbye. And me, Paul Verbal. See you later. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 